and gentlemen. Uh, Can I please have your attention? Daniel Jigger! Hey listeners, this is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by the Dispatch and Dispatch Media. Um, our 30-day trial period is ending next week, so if you can uh, give it a whirl, that would be wonderful. We've had some great responses, um, despite the fact I dropped the ball because of uh, a host of work-related issues and couldn't get the Wednesday G-File out, um, for which I am... Um, I think this is kind of sincerely, uh, grossly sorry. Um, I hate missing those kinds of things. Um, anyway, uh, today's episode, I'm actually recording this after I finished. So if I sound like I'm sort of a spent force, it's because I'm a spent force. And I had a very long conversation uh, with uh, Seth Maskett from uh, Denver University of Denver. Um, and uh, it was, it was, I think, it was sufficiently interesting to me that I didn't want it to end. And I work on the assumption on this podcast that if it's sufficiently interesting to me, that the people who listen to this podcast will also find it sufficiently interesting. So uh, rather than split it in two, we're just going to let it run. Uh, if you want to wait till the end, we got into a long thing about identity politics. But um, I think it was worth uh, running with for a while. And um, so I'm just re-recording the intro so you know that. Uh, today's episode is brought to you by, um, the Acton line from the Acton Institute. More about that in a little bit. And from our friends at Hydrant. And, uh, I'll tell you more about them in a little bit as well. And now, uh, buckle up for a lengthy, interesting conversation with Seth Maskett, who runs the Center on American Politics at Denver University and is the author of the new book, Learning from Loss. Uh, the Democrats, 2016 to 2020. Here we go. Seth, welcome to The Remnant. Thank you so much for having me on. Um, so uh, long-time listeners of this podcast know that I'm, a, I'm, I'm somewhat nerdily obsessed with the weakness of parties and how that explains most, not most of our problems. There are other reasons why we can't have nice things. But it's an important part of the story about why our politics is so messed up, in my view, is that the parties are are um, too weak, not too strong. At least that's my view of it. And we can talk about that in a little bit. And you're sort of the one of the go-to guys to talk about this. But it would be, I would lose my pundit decoder ring if we didn't talk for a few seconds, at least, about the debates, which happened two nights ago. We're recording this on Thursday. I should say the debate. Um, uh, what'd you make of it? <laughs> uh Honestly, it was unpleasant. I, I have to say, like, you know, I, I don't think I've missed a presidential debate in my adult life. And, you know, they, they, I could probably rank them all from exciting to boring, but like this one was bothersome. Like I, I actually, you know, I came away not wanting to watch more presidential debates and, uh, uh, yeah, I, I got the impression Trump had a, a particular agenda just, you know, to get under Biden's skin and to get him to mess up, to get him to stammer and, um, uh, say foolish things. I, I don't think it particularly worked, um, in the sense that I, you know, I, I don't think Biden really lost his cool. I think he, he didn't, I, I would have more in his position. Um, and I think it just, it just made Trump look worse. And he, and I was surprised, like by contrast, his behavior in the 2016 debates looked like a, a model of decorum. 
Um, it was, uh, I don't know. I'm, I'm actually curious to hear what you thought of it. Yeah. Well, so I mean, I, I, I basically agree with all of that. Um, I think it's of a piece with his longstanding strategy of only being president of his own base rather than the whole country. And just a very sort of, I mean, a, a confounding thing from a, sort of a, just a analytical point of view about he's the first president, I assume, since maybe uh, Andrew Jackson, but maybe ever, who was not concerned with expanding his coalition. Um, and maybe you know of a president who had a similar point of view, but like, I thought it was one of these basic rules of American politics that you get elected president and then you try to build on your coalition rather than try to shave off the parts that aren't a thousand percent loyal. Um, and he doesn't, he's gone a different way. And I thought that was interesting. I guess one of the questions I have for you just as a, as a matter of political science is, you know, one of the. I think you're absolutely right. Look, I mean, what he was trying to do, as my colleague Sarah Isger put it, is just get one minute of Biden melting down, having a terrible moment that could be you could be weaponized in what is basically a social media campaign to begin with. Mm -hmm. And they failed to get that. So whether it was a smart strategy or not, um, he his execution failed to the job. And I actually think one of the biggest blunders in that wasn't and it was and this is purely an amoral thing. I mean. Uh, talking about this in terms of like normative, you know, moral value laden stuff. I thought what Trump did was pretty terrible, but just as an analytical thing, I think Trump's biggest mistake wasn't being a jerk. It was interrupting Biden at moments when Biden could have had one of those moments, right? Where Biden was giving bad answers and rather, and, and, and Trump saved him by interrupting in a jerkish fashion. And if he had just let Biden talk a little bit, they might've gotten one of the moments that they wanted, but they couldn't do it. But I guess the question I've got is, uh, you know, Frank Luntz said in his focus group that there were actually people who came out of that, came out of it watching it saying they're less inclined to vote at all. Mm. And I thought that was something I hadn't considered like the, on the night of the debate is if the, if possibly part of the strategy is just to make things so ugly that his more motivated base turns out and moderates and centrists don't because they're just disgusted by the whole spectacle. I, I'm not saying it's a great strategy, but I'm wondering if you think there's anything to that. I, I mean, I, I think that's, that's something he's pushed at various times throughout his political career. I think we saw that in 2016, where a lot of his campaigning style wasn't to make himself look better so much as to drag Hillary Clinton and other people down to his level. Um, and just to the point where voters would say, oh, well, they're all crooks, whatever. I'll just go with what I'm feeling today. Um, that doesn't strike me as a particularly good strategy to the extent it's a strategy. Um if you're, you know, if you're consistently trailing by seven points, um, I think he went into there needing to make up some ground. And I, you know, if, you know, if, if he's lucky, he lost no ground. Um, but I, I, you know, I didn't see him actually improving any, any of his situation. If anything, he, he might have, he might have turned off some people from voting altogether and just, you know, feeling disgusting by the franchise. But I don't think those were likely Biden voters, uh, uh, likely Biden voters um, in the first place. Those were, 
probably some people who might have voted for him or they were people who were legitimately on the fence and just either, you know, I could see conservatives just saying, look, I'm not really crazy about him, but I would prefer his people are in power than Biden's people are in power. Um, And just walking away saying, this is gross. I don't want anything to do with this. Yeah. I mean, my own, and this is what I was about to tell you on the, before we start recording, obviously purely selective anecdotal sample, but I have a bunch of friends who are less committed to their sort of Trump opposition than I am. And, uh, but they all concede to one extent or another, he's suboptimal, <laughs> um, I think, you know, and, uh, but they, you know, they buy into the negative partisan argument that the Democrats would be really bad. The courts will do all these terrible things and better to have him like, sort of as James Baker just told, you know, um, Peter Baker and these guys uh, and for that book about James Baker, he says, look, at the end of the day, I'd just rather have someone on our team in the office than someone on their team. And I get that argument. I can have sympathies for that argument. But I I got text messages and emails from a handful of them in the last 48 hours saying, All right, I'm just done. I'm back to hating him. Uh, um, I think we just we got to get, you know, Amy Coney Barrett on the court and then just wash our hands of this guy. And I understand why liberals don't find that to be a great, you know, concession, but uh, it is sociologically and culturally for me, it is really interesting how many people I've heard from on the right who were doing a Hamlet act about whether or not they were going to vote for him. And now they're just like, yeah, I I can't do it. I can't do it. And so it, it could be that you're right. He just, he turned off more Trump voters than he did Biden voters. I don't know though. Um, okay. So, uh, I, you know, I didn't invite you on here for me to filibuster with rank <laughs> punditry. So let's move on to, uh, your actual book and your actual argument. And I will pepper you with various questions about the roles of parties in the process. Um, favorite question on this podcast. Uh, what's your book about? So basically the book is about, I wanted to catch a political party in the act of making a decision. Okay. There's been a lot of good books about the decisions parties make, you know, about what stances to take or about whom to nominate and, and, and those sorts of things. But they all sort of presume a conversation that occurs among activists and among party leaders and elected officials and others that uh, they sort of process the last election, you, you know, usually one in which they lost. They try to figure out why that happened. And then they use that information to figure out what they need to do for the next time around. Um, what positions they need to take, what sort of candidate they need um, in order to, you know, maximize their chances for winning, but also put in office someone who they think will deliver the things they care about. And I wanted to capture that. Now, I started this in 2016. I had this idea for this book and I thought, well, it'll be really interesting to follow the Republicans after Donald Trump loses because um, they're obviously due for a really interesting moment of self-reflection. He got nominated in this unusual way and he lost this winnable election. How are they going to be talking about that? Uh, that conversation has not yet occurred, obviously. <laughs> um, it ended up that went that passed to the Democrats instead. And so starting in early 2017, I, I did some visits to talk to a bunch of Democratic activists in New Hampshire and Iowa and uh, South Carolina and Nevada and some in D.C., uh, just asking them, um, why do you think Hillary Clinton lost? And then sort of following them over the next few years, uh, thinking about, you know, who they wanted to nominate for next time, what they thought the party needed to do. 
And just that one question, you know, why did Hillary Clinton lost? Well, that's like an hour long answer right there. People had lots of opinions about it. There's, they still don't agree. Um, but a lot of the responses um, came down to some version of, I think we need to go with a safe nominee next time around. The stakes are too high. I'm willing to give up a lot of the things I care about right now in order to get a win. And people just came out of that. Uh, they came out of 2016 very disoriented. They came out um, really, you know, willing to pay a price, a significant price for a win. The one of the metaphors I have in there is that like they saw Hillary Clinton as new Coke, and uh, it seemed like a good model. They weren't sure why it didn't work, but they knew it didn't. And so in, in that situation, you know, probably the best thing to do is fall back with Coke Classic. And so it was just a matter of finding that. And as long as Biden was in that mix, um, doing, you know, not horribly in the contest, it was it was always sort of leaning in that direction. Um, so let's stay on that for just two seconds. The, yeah. the weirdness about that, though, is. It was. You, you talked to party people in New Hampshire and, and Iowa and Biden did not do all that well in New Hampshire and Iowa. Right. It was. And the people who actually saved Biden in South Carolina and really on Super Tuesday, right, which was like the next week, um, were African-American, middle-aged and older African-American women, right? I mean, mm -hmm. wasn't that the sort of the, the the bulk of it? And those those aren't necessarily the sort of party deciders, right? I mean, the party deciders were in New Hampshire and, and Iowa. And, um, uh, what, you know, what explains that? Was that the, the, lane, the lanes were so crowded with all of the sort of Bernie and Obama people that that when well, it's it's complicated calling them Obama people when you think about it. But so what explains that? Why why did it take till South Carolina? Yeah, the, I mean that's a really interesting question. I the people I identified and, and basically in each state I did I started with uh, talking to some political journalists, just kind of asking them if I'm interested in following you know, the people who are regularly involved with presidential nominations here, who who work on the caucuses, who work in the primaries, who get involved in the campaigns. Who do I need to talk to? And it, it just sort of, you know, those samples kind of built that way and just had these these long conversations with people. And I ended up interviewing, like, I think roughly 65 people. The um, I guess the plurality of those people by the end of 2019 were leaning Biden um, for one reason or another. Some had been with him all along. Others were like, uh, you know, I've evaluated a lot of candidates. I think this is the safest choice. We think he can actually win. Um. It's true that, you know, in some of those early states, you know, the, the voters or the or the caucus goers didn't necessarily agree with that. Um, there remained significant support for um, Bernie Sanders in a lot of the party. Um, there were, you know, there were some Buttigieg people in there. I mean, there, there were a number of others. Um, one thing I was surprised in the conversation going throughout 2019 is how much people were sort of downplaying Iowa and New Hampshire. That despite all the campaign activity that was going on there, um, a lot of people were saying, look how large and diverse this field of presidential candidates is. Um, are the, you know, the white rural voters of New Hampshire and Iowa really going to pick a winner here? And people were sort of preparing for the moment that all those first four states ended up with a different winner. Um, how do you choose among them? You know, there's no real narrative coming out of there. And it was it surprised me the degree to which those four states ended up being they were almost like beauty contests. You know, they were you know, they were like sort of uh, the old Iowa straw poll 
where everyone was just sort of showing off their supporters. You were getting a sense of like who could actually bring people to the polls. Um, but ultimately, uh, um, African-American voters, particularly in, in South Carolina, really kind of asserted themselves and said, we're the ones who, you know, you need us when it comes down to it. In a lot of states, we are going to be crucial. And, uh, you know, just the white voters of rural states are not going to be enough. And that ended up being a very, a very strong argument. And um, Biden kept promising that uh, those folks were with him. And the fact that he was getting so many endorsements from prominent African-American leaders in South Carolina, despite there being two very high quality African-American candidates in the race, um, you know, I, I think was a was a real plus for Biden. And even though he was flailing in those early contests, um, he always sort of had that uh, ace in the hole and they and that 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 group delivered for him. So I want to get back to the reasons why Hillary lost in a second. Um, but on the role of African-American voters in the Democratic Party, I, I, I fully acknowledge this is a gross generalization and there's, a, there's more heterodox and heterodoxy and diversity in the African-American community than sort of the media likes to pretend there is. Um, or yeah, Joe Biden occasionally in his gas has said there is. <laughs> but uh, for a big chunk of my life, the the african-american wing of the democratic party such as it is basically is represented by the uh by jesse jackson or the congressional black caucus mm -hmm. was as a matter of shorthand as unfair as this might be um to some people like harold ford or something was considered to be holding down the left-wing base of the party to one extent or another and very rapidly it seems to me really only sort of culminating in 2016 or in, in 2020 primaries um, with a few signs like the Ralph Northam thing in, in Virginia, where it was African-American Democrats who were less in favor of him resigning than white suburban liberals, uh, that all of a sudden the African-American wing of the party with, again, obviously some exceptions, is now a more conservatizing, pragmatic force in the party, and the sort of woke white, you know, you know the barista socialists, as someone like me might call them, <laughs> um, are holding down the left wing. And I mean, Bernie is more left wing than a lot of the African Americans in the party now. Is that a? Is that right? And b? If 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 it's not, why? And if it is, why did that happen? Um, I, I think there is something to that. I, so, uh, I had this, this kind of unique moment where I, I, uh, one of my trips to South Carolina, um, was I think sh right before the, the first debate in uh, June of 2019. Um, it was for the, the fish fry, um, the, the Jim Clyburn fish fry in Columbia. And that was right after, um, Biden had made those comments about how he worked, had worked so well early in his Senate career with segregationists and, uh, Kamala Harris and Cory Booker were jumping all over, over Biden's case about that. And I, I spoke to a number of, um, uh, black organizers and voters in, in Columbia and, and others. And, and they were like, you know what, Cory and Kamala really need to check themselves here. Um, <laughs> we understand why they're, why they're criticizing him, why they're doing what they're doing, but folks here recognize that, um, uh, you know, we see in Biden the sort of prominent white person that we've needed to work with for many years to make any real progress. 
And, you know, it's one thing to criticize, but if you actually want to get stuff done, first of all, you have to get an office. And second of all, you need people who can talk this language to other white people. And uh, they, they sort of saw a, a, a kind of, there was, it, was, it was a very pragmatic um, kind of lesson that I was getting there. Um, but, and much more so than I was hearing from, um, from white activists within the party who were really jumping on kind of the symbolic nature of Biden's comments and were really put off by what he was saying. And they were like, look, Biden can win and we trust him, you know, regardless of, of whatever gaffe he's saying, he's got a long career, he's earned our trust and, and we, we can stick with that. And he was Obama's VP, which has to count for something, right? <laughs> I think that had huge symbolic value that, um, yeah. you know, people just that if if, you know, if a black voter knew nothing else about Biden, they knew that um, and they knew that that, um, that first of all, that Obama trusted him. And second of all, that, you know, um, you know, there's some great quote in there about how, you know, they, they watched um, Biden working for Obama for for eight years and never undermining him. Like basically like, like, you know, using his privilege to help Obama out. And, you know, that, that, that was real. That is, that had good symbolic value for them. Um, and, and was more serious credential than a lot of other, the candidates had. So yeah, as long as, yeah. Go, 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 go on. So as long as that was going on, I, I think he was in good shape and, you know, more to what you were saying. Um, there's a section in the book where I, I talk about some of the meetings going on within the DNC um, throughout 2018. This is when they were dealing with like superdelegate reform uh, and other things like that. And I, um, it was fascinating sort of the lines that were drawn within the party, particularly when it came to the idea of, of either reforming or getting rid of superdelegates. You basically had, you know, you had the Sanders supporters who felt that, you know, superdelegates were this, you know, this really ugly legacy They had given Hillary Clinton all these advantages in 2016. They have to be either weakened or gotten rid of. These were mostly white people. These were mostly people who were new to relatively new to the party who had come in within the last, you know, four to four to eight years. And on the other side, you know, pushing back against them were mostly black supporters of Hillary Clinton from 2016 who were saying, who are the superdelegates? It's it's the Congressional Black Caucus. You know, it's it's people. And we have spent a lot of time working our way up into this party and having a voice. And here come these um, these new white people to try and take our voice away from us. And it was very it was a very racialized conversation. Um, and they really, you know, so that was a line within the party. It wasn't just simply sort of progressive versus stand pad. There was also there was a black versus white. There was a, a new versus uh, more experienced. Um, so that, you know, that's, that's a real line within the party still, I think, I mean, it's a little bit, um, papered over now because I think the party is just unusually united and wanting to get Trump out of office. But, um, you yeah, know, that's, that, that's a fissure that remains. Yeah. I mean, just on the United party thing, I think one of the interesting things out of that debate was how Trump kept trying to do this wedge thing of you just lost the left because you didn't agree <laughs> to whatever it was. And either Trump doesn't understand or his advisors don't understand that those are perfectly good political strategies to, you know, try to divide your opposition. If you do it in a way that doesn't make your opposition hate you even more, <laughs> right? I mean, so, I mean, like, I, I think a George W. Bush or, uh, you know, uh, um, uh, maybe not a Mitt Romney, but, you know, a Ronald Reagan, someone from a different with a different political skill set 
could have tweaked those things in a Biden in a way that would have aroused the left wing base of the party and said, whoa, 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 hold on there. But he did it in a way that just makes most of the party say, yeah, whatever, I hate you. And <laughs> um, and I just so it, it, it and it's just funny how he doesn't get that those strategies that, you know, one of the things that Reagan understood is people have to like you if they're going to listen to the next part of your argument. <laughs> and um, particularly if they disagree with you. <laughs> right. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's sort of like an Arthur Brooks point is that. No one will listen to your policy solutions unless they first know that you actually care about what they care about, you know, and. Right. It wasn't like AOC was going to listen to that. It's like, oh, you know what? Trump has a point there. I mean, that you know, right. it was first of all, like we've had this conversation within the party <laughs> right? Um, where, you know, I recognize Joe Biden doesn't agree with me on a lot of things I care about, but we've agreed to work together for this election. And, and Trump is not about to like exploit a serious fissure there um, is also Trump has spent the last month saying that, you know, Joe Biden is the Trojan horse for the left. And then he's immediately pivoting to, uh, he's not going to listen to the left as some sort of an attack. Uh, I don't know. The, the, it didn't yeah, start no, me. That's a good point. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's a, the defenestration of these arguments that you've built up for a very long time, uh, on the fly is not ideal. Um, all right. So let's go back to 2016 though, which yeah. is, you know, a big, big part of the book and, um, or the point of the book. And, you say that there was no consensus about why Hillary lost. And um, my own view on that has always been, and I think we talked about this at the, at the Denver thing that we did, um, is the problem, it's sort of, it's, it's, it's the flip side of the same coin about why Trump won. When you win so narrowly in such a sort of black swan picking a lock of electoral college, mix all the metaphors you want kind of way. Virtually every theory about why you won has some validity. It's like what you political science guys call an overdetermined phenomenon, right? Mm -hmm. You know, and, and by, by definition, by the same logic, every reason why Hillary lost has some validity. Um, so, you know, what are the, what, what, in your view, or among the consensus among Democrats, what were the primary reasons why Hillary lost that you found to be having the most validity? I mean, again, almost any theory has some, but, right? Uh, what were the ones that you found to be either most subscribed to or most persuasive? Yeah, and I, and I should say, for the purposes of this book, I largely didn't care which of the narratives were true. Right. Um, I was, I was mostly interested in just hearing like, what, what did these Democrats believe and, and, you know, what is that leading them to do? I, I'd say the, the bulk of, um, the narratives I heard from people concerned, you know, things related to the campaign or the candidate that is, um, we were campaigning in the wrong places or, you know, we, we didn't have the right message or we, you know, we spent more money here than we should have and less money in this other place that we should have. Some of it focused specifically on Hillary Clinton that said, um, you know, it turned out she wasn't a very good campaigner or she alienated people more than we had expected. Or, you know, we, we didn't realize how, you know, how deep there, there was some hatred for her. Um, there, there were a few people who had things like it was about Russia. It was about James Comey, you know, just sort of these, these one-off things that campaigns really can't control. One of the narratives I, I spent some time digging into there is the, the so-called identity politics critique. 
And uh, that is one that, that came up as a pretty popular media narrative shortly after the election. That was this idea that um, Hillary Clinton spent so much time advocating for underrepresented groups, um, for people of color, for women, for the LGBT community, um, and, you know, championing their needs and never really mentioning working class whites who instead, you know, who basically felt left out of the Democratic coalition and responded to the one candidate that was talking to them, who was Trump. Um, I don't, you know, I don't think there's a ton of evidence that that actually moved votes, but um, that is, I think, for a number of reasons, a, a fairly persuasive and consequential argument. Um, for one thing, if you if you come out of 2016 thinking we just had a bad candidate or we didn't run the right campaign or we had bad ad- advertising or something like that, you can fix those things. Um, you can change those relatively easily for the next election without really needing to rethink who you are as a party. If the party comes away uh, thinking the problem is we advocated too much for inclusiveness and diversity, which has really been kind of the core mission of the Democratic Party for for several years now. Um, And, you know, we've basically we've advocated for black people and we've advocated for women too much and we need to pull back from that to win. Uh, That is a hard pill to swallow. And that is, you know, that can be very disorienting. It's also an argument that a number of people in the Democratic Party have made basically every time they lose a presidential election in the last half century. I mean, this was, you know, when they were losing election after election in the 1980s, there was this group of white Southern Democrats who was saying, well, the problem is we're not nominating white Southern governors. Um, And we need to, we're too much in the thrall of Jesse Jackson. We're too much in the thrall of the feminists. So, you know, let's, you know, let's go with Bill Clinton or someone like that. Um, and sometimes that works, but, um, you know, some of those coming out of 2016, it it ended up leaning toward, we need to nominate a moderate white male. Um, and that's what'll, that's what'll bring us back some support in the Midwest. And that's what'll give us back some of the white working class. Um, and, you know, at least so far, uh, you know, events seem to be following that narrative. Um, yeah, I mean, on, on, is I'm of the view, again, I'll keep saying it, every theory has some validity in a mm-hmm. situation like this. I mean, literally weather could have caused Hillary Clinton to lose, because when you only lose by, what, 80,000 votes in three states, um, uh, and, but, you know, so I, I think there are lots of different factors of that have some plausibility why she lost, including the fact that, look, she just, she just didn't stay hydrated, which is why I want to talk about hydrant. You may think I'm kidding about Hillary Clinton, but first of all, she did often look dehydrated and, you know, uh, she did faint at that event. And fainting is often a a major symptom of dehydration. Top performers in business and sports often attribute their success to their morning routine, whether it's waking up early, setting their goals for the day, exercise or meditation. But not everyone has the time to do it all. With hydrant, you can jumpstart your mornings and maybe actually win the Democratic race for President of the United States. Hydrant creates flavored electrolyte packets you mix directly into your water to make hydrating your body easy and delicious. Each rapid hydration mix has the four essential electrolytes your body needs. Sodium, potassium, magnesium, and my personal favorite, zinc. They help you hydrate quickly and stay hydrated all day. And Hydrant is backed by research 
The formula was developed by Oxford scientists to provide perfectly balanced, effective hydration. There's no synthetic colors or artificial sweeteners, and you can choose between three different flavors or a variety pack. Hydrant starts at just a buck a packet for a 30-day supply. You can even save more with a monthly subscription. And for 25% off your first order, go to drinkhydrant.com and enter promo code DINGO at checkout. That's drinkhydrant, D-R-I-N-K-H-Y-D-R-A-N-T dot com and enter promo code DINGO for 25% off your first order. Drinkhydrant.com, promo code DINGO. We thank Hydrant for sponsoring today's episode of The Remnant. So but back to Hillary losing in 2016. I, um, you know, one of my great frustrations, and we've talked about this and, and you know, I've written a lot about this, is that the, the, and I'm, I'm, I plead guilty to this. I keep meaning to write this major sort of, you know, what was my role in the last 10 years kind of piece. But uh, the right was so opposed to Hillary Clinton for so many reasons. And and I played my role in all that. Um, And because of that, and I'm not saying that the right was wrong to oppose her because I'm really not a fan of Hillary Clinton's, but uh, the wild eyed demonization of her got, you know, pretty wild eyed. And, uh, and it got to the point where you had this introduction of apocalyptic politics that came into it, where the idea of Hillary Clinton, um, uh, being president, particularly following after eight years of Obama seemed like the end of America introduced flight 93 election kind of stuff onto the right. And, um, uh, and at the same time you had on the left, um, a large chunk of Democrats who didn't like Hillary Clinton, basically the Bernie wing and, 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 um, and a lot of on the bubble, uh, Trump Obama voters who saw her as sort of part of the problem that, you know, uh, that the democratic party was, was going the wrong way on. And so you have as a result, Hillary Clinton giving the permission structure for the right to embrace nationalism in ways that, you know, some will claim that there was always a strain of virulent nationalism on the right. Maybe so, certainly in some fever swamp places, but I would argue that it was fairly well kept in check. And Trump comes in and the the sort of Medusa's head of Hillary so terrifies the right that they are willing to forget all sorts of principled objections to the Trump agenda and to Trump's personality. And meanwhile, the Democratic Party is so split, or at the very least, there are enough Democrats who are so opposed to Hillary and the sort of corporate liberalism that they think that she represents, that it gives a artificial buoyancy to Bernie Sanders' socialism. And so in some ways, you could argue that Hillary Clinton was the most significant political figure of the last 30 years because she helped the Democratic Party go socialist and the Republican Party go nationalist. Now, I I think it's the weird thing is that you're getting Biden is more of a regression to the mean than the socialist guy, which is good. And I'm glad for it in terms of hoping for the best for the country. But, um, you know, is the, is the role of Hillary Clinton, you know, in all of this really the, the thing that it's sort of the magnet that throws off the compass, right? It's the bad data that makes it for political science is very difficult to do because there was just something about Hillary as opposed to bill, 
There was just something about Hillary that enough people didn't like, and some of it was probably sexism, and some of it was due to her own personality, that it's sort of hard cases make for bad law, bad political personalities make for bad political science. Does that make any sense? You know, it's, it's hard to rule that out, but I have I have tended to take the view, you know, particularly in 2016, that the actual identity of the candidates themselves is way overrated. That if you were to, you know, and I, uh, I, I sort of fixate on this, but like the, those, the, the political science forecast models that, that come out the summer before an election, um, I think there were, you know, like nine or 10 models that uh, uh, were d- discussed at the American Political Science Association in August of 2016. They had, you know, that, that basically limit things to here's what the economy looks like. Um, you know, here's what the international situation looks like. Here's like how long this party has been in office. Just, you know, really simple models that take everything out about what we know about the candidates all had, you know, basically all predicted a very close race with the Republican having a slight advantage just based on the fact that it was, it was a, you know, not stellar, but good economy. Um, Democrats had held power for two terms. That's going to be generally a close race. And if you had had, if that race had been like, you know, Martin O'Malley versus Jeb Bush, you probably would have gotten a pretty similar outcome. Um, it would have been close. Probably, you know, the Republican would have had a slight advantage uh, going into it. Um, now, maybe you have, um, maybe the personalities did matter and both Trump and Clinton had so many negatives that they kind of canceled each other out. Um and it also may be that, you know, Clinton was so polarizing both nationally and within her own party, you know, as you point out, that it, that it actually made for made for a hard nomination. But um, I I tend to think we would have seen a, a similar situation um, almost no matter who that nominee was. And, you know, that's why it, it was so interesting talking, uh, you know, doing all these interviews and talking with people. Um, cause I didn't hear very many of the political scientist answers, which would have been, you know, things like what I just said that like, you know, the, the really boring answers that like, eh, it was probably going to be a, an election like this anyway. Um, or, you know, the fact that you have so much negative polarization going on, um, you know, basically people are going to line up behind their nominee, no matter what in the end. Um, and also, by the way, another thing that barely even came up was like, oh, the electoral college is a thing. And, you know, Democrats can win by several points and still lose. And, you know, I think for the most part, you know, activists and political consultants and others, they're focusing on the things that they can affect. And, uh, you know, that's that's what they came up with. Um, You know, and this is one thing I've wondered, because I've I've seen some of um, some conversations today looking at some of Biden's advantages over Trump going into this election and, and seeing all the places he's doing well and just saying, wow, if you know, Democrats saying, if we had just run Biden four years ago, you know, if, if not for the un, untimely uh, death of his son, Bo, and, you know, he'd have been the candidate and he, he probably would have beaten Trump handily. And honestly, I'm not convinced of that. Um, I think the, you know, the, the conditions are far more favorable for a Democratic presidential nominee now than they were four years ago. Um, you know, simply because of who people know Trump is now, because of the conditions of the economy, because of the pandemic, you know, you, you didn't have any of that four years ago. Um, that was going to be close. I, I do want to come back to Democrats, but I just on this whole party decides thing, and maybe mm-hmm. you can do a better job than me of explaining what that phrase means to political scientists and whatnot. Um, but 
in 2012 on the Republican side, and I know you paid some attention to the Republican side because it's A, your job, and B, you're planning on doing a book about Republicans. Um, there was this autopsy, right? And it said, stop being jerks towards Hispanics, stop doing this, stop doing that, stop, don't talk about immigration this way, yada, yada, yada. And um, Donald Trump went a different way. I think we can all agree. Um, and uh, just slightly. Yeah. And yeah. <laughs> so uh, rapists and murderers, they're bringing disease. Some are probably OK people. But, you know, there was all, uh, all of that kind of stuff. Um, so if you could explain the sort of the party decides thing and what does it mean if the party decided that they should go with a, a anti-Trumpian strategy, that they ended up going with a Trumpian strategy? Was it just a collective action problem on the Republican side? Was it that the autopsy was just wrong or was that it was prematurely, it was, it was, it's right, but it was wrong for this period. I mean, just whatever, whatever comes to mind. So and, and part of this answer is, is somewhat outside of the whole of the party decides model. You know, I've, I've, that, that model weighs heavily over my book. Um, also some, some early work by um, uh, Marjorie Hershey um, about basically the uh, is also very influential for me, which is um, her work is about basically the, the battle to define why a loss occurred. You know, as soon as a party loses, there are basically there are factions within a party who make lots of different arguments about, um, you know, trying to control people's understanding of, you know, why they felt they lost. And I believe that, you know, that that postmortem in 2012, um, I think Sean Spicer was one of the authors of that, a few other prominent people on the RNC, um, they were very much trying to move the party in a specific direction. Um, you know, they felt that, that like, you know, we, we lost because people think we're racist. People think we're sexist and we have to change that. We have to change that view. Um, and basically that was a gambit. That was a, uh, you know, that was a wing of the Republican party trying to move the party in a different direction. You know, that faction lost. Um, and that is, I guess you could see that as part of like, you know, the, the work in the party decides where you have influential people within the party that are, you know, spend several years in this invisible primary stage trying to argue about who would be the best candidate for, for the next election. So in this case for 2016, um, and they were, you know, evaluating the different candidates, looking to see who they liked, who they didn't like trying to figure out what they actually cared about, you know, what issues they wanted someone to advance. And to a remarkable degree in 2016, you know, the, the, that party, the Republicans, did not decide. Um, the, the people who usually, you know, make a decision, the people who usually decide to endorse candidates largely didn't. Um, to the extent people did, you know, we're talking about, you know, members of Congress making endorsements and, you know, other prominent uh, interest group leaders and others within the party. They, they were kind of divided all over the place. Some were endorsing Rubio, some were endorsing Jeb Bush. Um, a few with Ted Cruz, but they were pretty scattered. I think, you know, the very few people endorsed Donald Trump. Um, but mostly the party just didn't send a clear signal. They just, they just didn't have an opinion and kind of just sat back to see what the voters would do you know, when it came to the primaries and caucuses. A few of them, you know, like Mitt Romney, um, actually came out and said, Trump would be a real mistake for this party. We should not do this. And voters did it anyway. And so that was one of the things I was wrestling with when I was starting 
my book out was like, I was curious whether Democrats were in a similar place where Republicans were four years earlier. That is, you know, were they also not able to make a decision? Were they, or if they could make a decision, were they not able to convince voters of that? Um, and because the, the lesson on the Democratic side from 2016 was mixed. Like, they very, you know, party insiders in 2016 very clearly made a choice. You know, they, overwhelmingly, they said, we we want Hillary Clinton. We've thought about this. We've decided she's our best candidate. You know, and, and to an overwhelming degree, like they did for Al Gore in 2000, or the way Republicans did for George W. Bush in 2000. And uh, nonetheless, you had, you know, a, a lot of other, you know, potential Democratic candidates in 2016 heard that signal. They got the point. And they said, this is not the year for me to run. Uh, Bernie Sanders decided to push it anyway. And in part, he's not a Democrat. <laughs> in part, yeah. Part, like yeah, he's, you know. he's oriented to not hear those signals. Like he doesn't, you know, right. if you tell him it's not the time to run, he's like, oh good, I'm going to do it. Um, and you know, he wanted to push back on that. And it really kind of showed that in some ways, the same lesson that Donald Trump showed, which is that if, you know, party leaders can't actually force you to do anything. Right. You know, they can they can create some incentives. They can they can tilt the deck a, a little bit, but they can't actually make you drop out of a race. And so he decided to, to stick it out. And he stayed in far longer than most other candidates would have. And, you know, in with having a similar set of losing races and showed that he could actually deal some damage to to the party establishment in the same. Not the, quite the same way that Trump did because he didn't win the nomination but, uh, that there was, there was a matter of like personal agency involved here. So I was, I was really curious following that what was going to happen in 2020. Um, you know, could the Democrats make a choice? Could Bernie Sanders decide to throw a wrench in it again if he wanted to? And what I came out of it with was, um, no, the Democrats actually still like the party is still a thing there. Um, that there was, you know, we saw lots of prominent people within the party make endorsements that, that largely went for Biden. Um, you know, a fair number went for some other candidates, but Biden, you know, by the end of 2019 really had the preponderance of the, of of those endorsements. Uh, people who, um, what I call party loyal donors, that is people who donate to the party and donate to candidates. They overwhelmingly prefer Joe Biden. Um, you know, there were all these signals that, that Biden was their guy. Plus he was, you know, leading in the, in the polls, which I normally think are a little overhyped, but the fact that he was, he was, he led in the polls all throughout 2019, you know, no matter what was going on, you know, suggested that there was, there was a wellspring within the party that was, that was pretty supportive of him. Um, so I saw the party actually making a choice there. And then you saw that had, you know, after the South Carolina, in those few days after South Carolina and before Super Tuesday, when all of a sudden all these candidates started dropping out and, you know, you, you saw that, that like suddenly the party making uh, a decision and just, you know, every, everyone was pointing at Biden and Amy Klobuchar drops out and Pete Buttigieg drops out and Elizabeth Warren says, I need to think about what's going on here. And you see the party consolidating um, around Biden. And, uh, you know, you realize that uh, you know, that 30% that Bernie has been pulling is really his cap. Um, that was kind of an amazing moment. That was, that looked like a party deciding to me and actually having some teeth with that decision that it wasn't so much about convincing voters. It was just, it was limiting their choices. And, you know, once you constrain their choices that way, yeah, Biden was the guy. Okay. I have several questions about all that. Okay. I'm not saying anything that's wrong. I just, I'm, sorry, that I'm, was I'm, long, but, uh, no, 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 it's useful. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's okay. useful. So, 
first of all, when you were saying how um, the Democratic Party decided that Hillary Clinton was the best candidate, I understand that there's some shorthand in there, but the uh, this is an honest question of mine about how these things work in that insofar as, you know, Hillary narrowly loses to Obama in 2008. She joins the administration. I don't know if there's an explicit deal that I support you now, you support me later, but it feels like there was a lot of that kind of transactional, either implied or explicit stuff at the sub-principal level, right? You know, just like the Clinton people were like, okay, we're, we're paying our dues by helping out your faction. And in return, your faction needs to help out our faction. You know, Obama, for whatever reason, talks Biden out of running in 2016. And I guess the question I have, the first question I have is, did party leaders really believe that Hillary was the best candidate? Or was this Hillary, I mean, like literally one of Hillary's first slogans was, it's her turn, right? Which is actually a bad slogan in the, on the merits, and I can talk about that for a very long time, in a populist moment in particular. But um, it's also a very Republican idea, right? This was always what was like, I think the first person I heard this from was like Robert Novak making this point, where the Republican Party had this system where you got, you worked your way up to the nomination by taking, you know, by, by waiting your turn. You were the treasurer and then you were this and then you were that. And you look at the history of who the Republican nominees were until 2016, and it really was largely a thing about turn taking. The previous guy who came in second in the primaries, it's his turn now, that kind of thing. You've checked the box of all these subordinate positions. That kind of, it, you know, put aside the feminist valence of, of it's her turn, that kind of felt like what it was with Hillary. So my, again, my question is, did everybody decide that she was the best candidate or did they feel like it was her turn for all sorts of transactional reasons? Um, I, I agree with you. Yeah, it, it's her turn isn't necessarily the... That's a good argument to use among like people within the party that like, you know, um, that I, I paid my dues. I've, I've done what you asked me to. I've been a good soldier. Now it's my turn. Um, I think I feel like that was sort of like Bob Dole's argument to you know, trying to get the nomination in 96 and like, yeah, OK, fine. He's paid his dues. But that's not it was something George gonna... H.W.'s argument right. entirely in right. 88 <laughs> and in 92. Yep. Right. And in 88 and 80. Yeah. It's our guy. Go on. Yeah. But like, I don't think there's that many voters who are like, all right, he's due. Let's leave. Yeah, um, uh, but if the party's deciding that argument has more power, right? Right. Right. And I don't know how much of that was really transactional. I mean, I think the, you know, the, the Obama folks, you know, the Obama coalition, which is like a very large chunk of the Democratic Party, uh, did feel somewhat indebted to her. And, you know, they felt like she had, you know, she had been a good soldier. Um, he beat her. She, she, she dropped out. She backed him. She was, she was willing to go to bat for the administration. They seemed to work pretty well together. Um, you know, she'd done basically everything everyone asked her to do and would they support her? So I, there was some of that, but also I think she really made an effort during those years, you know, particularly during, um, Obama's second term to, you know, kind of do this charm offensive within the party and just win over all these experienced office holders and, 
demonstrate that she had some popularity, that um, that people in lots of different wings of the party liked her. Um, she actually had, you know, at the, at the time, as I recall, she had, uh, you know, very high approval ratings, uh, both within the party and nationally, um, had, a, you know, pretty solid reputation. Um, and, you know, I think she'd done that, you know, during the Benghazi hearings, she'd done like that 12 hours of testimony and had actually done really, you know, fra- fairly well with that, even if she'd been a lightning rod. Um, and, uh, you know, I think had largely impressed people within the party that this looked credible, um, that, that this looked like something that could happen. Plus, I think there was a sense of, you know, there were people who in, in 2008 within the Democratic Party who I think felt nervous on the electability argument. They were like, you know, could we really nominate an African-American candidate? Is this, is this a safe thing to do? And then it works. It works twice. He wins the popular vote two times in a row, which is, you know, pretty rare feat. Um, and she was just like, you know, okay, well, we did this. So now we can, you know, let's, let's try a woman. How, you know, there's, there's, there's clearly some argument for this. I don't think it, it rolled out quite as, as, as a lot of these people expected, but I think the, the promise of it at the time, I, I, I think she'd laid out a good case for why that would work and, uh, why people, you know, felt pretty confident that she could pull this off. I mean, I think she'd, she'd won over a lot of the, the key constituencies within the democratic party. I mean, she did, she did the things a nominee would need to do to, um, yeah. you know, to get that sort of party decide style nomination. I mean, my view on that always was, and th- I think this is one of the advantages that conservatives who aren't all groups, I don't think you'll debate me on this. All groups have a certain amount of bubble, a certain amount of confirmation bias, right? Mm-hmm. That they, and so they miss things from outside themselves that are kind of obvious to other people. I think Bill Clinton was easily one of the best extemporaneous pol- political talents in American, in my lifetime, to be sure. Um, he was just a fantastic natural politician, not a fan, fantastic natural politician. There was always this weird assumption that I think the Democratic Party got, was poorly served. You know, there are a lot of reasons why having big chunks of the mainstream media in on your team hurt the Democratic Party because you don't get the constructive criticism of the Democratic Party that might make you into a better politician or better political force. If everybody on Morning Joe to the Nightly News is talking about what a fantastic politician Hillary Clinton is, you might start to believe it. Mm -hmm. But for conservatives, like, I think there are lots of different kinds of politicians. An inside player, uh, a player from within the system, I think Hillary Clinton is a fantastic politician. A press the flesh on the, you know, on the hustings politician, I think she's terrible. And I think that a lot of insiders blinded themselves to that fact because they personally admired her or that the the way you're supposed to talk about her internally to the party was how she's a Clinton and therefore she has the same skill set that her husband did. And she just simply didn't. Um, But but this raises the second question I had from uh, before. So in 2016, Hillary loses. She wins the popular vote. Mm -hmm. She loses. Um, it was very narrowly in this black swan event. Why? And so I get why Bernie Sanders decides to run again as a socialist because he almost won the first time. I understand why a couple of the others tried to run in that lane too. 
what what explains the fact that with the exception of some people who I literally can't remember their names anymore, <laughs> right? There was that, that congressman and uh, somebody from Colorado. I mean, like, but uh, why was two. it that all- We had two, we had two from Colorado. <laughs> That's right. <Yeah. laughs> why didn't anybody other than Biden run in the non-Bernie lane? And even Biden's not that conservative a Democrat, right? I mean, he is- He's always been a centrist within the Democratic Party, not really a centrist in American politics. And I understand that the market signal you get is, oh, look how well Bernie did. Um, but Hillary beat him and Hillary won the popular vote as a more centrist candidate, um, at least within the Democratic Party. Why is it that there aren't many centrists left because of what happened under Obama's watch? Why did it fall to only basically Joe Biden and very late in the game, Pete Buttigieg, when he realized the lane that he was in got really crowded and with Elizabeth Warren and all these people and that maybe he should actually tack back and be the moderate alternative to Joe Biden? Why wasn't there more of an incentive structure for a sort of whether it's DLC or just centrist or just younger version of Biden? in, in the democratic primaries. Mm, uh, yeah. Um, so a couple of things there. Um, one is that there's, you know, I think there are a number of ways to read, like, what is the Bernie Sanders lane in the party? And, you know, it, it, one perspective is just simply, okay, that's the left, you know, that's just the, you know, whatever the most, you know, far, far left views are, that's, that's that part of the party. Um, the other aspect of Bernie though, is like the sort of, uh, left populist, uh, anti-establishment side. And there were a few candidates going for that. Um, but it, there's not necessarily as sharp an ideological divide. I mean, there were, you know, plenty of people who, um, you know, sort of believe what Bernie Sanders believed about the DNC, you know, about the Democratic establishment, who were not necessarily much further left than, you know, than your, your, your staunch Hillary Clinton supporters. Um, they just don't feel like, uh, you know, hadn't want to burn the party down as much to get there. And so it was interesting to see, you know, I, I agree. It was very, it was fascinating to see how this, how this candidate field positioned itself. You had, and I think a lot of it was just sort of reading, um, or their attempts to read sort of where is the energy in the democratic party right now? You know, who are the people who, you know, who are the activists within the party who are likely to be the voters in the, in the primaries and caucuses and, and what are the things they care about? And I think a lot of those candidates were reading, you know, partially coming out of 2016, but even more coming out of 2018. Um, they were seeing the party as having moved substantially to the left. Um, they were sort of reading this new progressive energy in the party and advocating for things like reparation of slavery, um, uh, for Medicare for all. Um, and I, uh, in some ways, I think that, it, you know, there was definitely some energy in the party for that, although I think that was probably a misreading of who was going to end up voting um, in, in the primaries and caucuses. I think probably Biden was closer to that. I think one thing that has served Joe Biden very well is uh, really not spending a lot of time on Twitter um, because <laughs> just and, you know, recognizing that actually, you know, your average Democratic primary voter is like, you know, not young. Um, you know, there's, there's somewhat older, there's somewhat more moderate. Um, but yeah, you had a lot of, a lot of the prominent candidates really, you know, fighting among a, a, a further left segment of the party. Um, just sort of feeling like this was who they needed to win over. I was surprised that you had a few candidates 
really trying to compete for, I guess, the more moderate wing of the party. I think of like, you know, Colorado's former governor, John Hickenlooper, was in there, um, you know, who specifically ran by attacking socialism and, you know, saying this, this is a dangerous move for our party and, you know, mostly got booed for it. And also just, you know, as long as Joe Biden was running, there was not really much energy for for someone else to be making those arguments. Um, they, they I, th- I think most Democrats were like, look, you know, we think Biden will be fine. We, we don't see a need to, to challenge him on this. Um, and everyone was sort of fighting to be, uh, you know, on that wing, they were sort of fighting, you know, in case Biden falls apart, you had Hickenlooper, maybe Michael Bennett to some extent, um, uh, maybe a few others, but the, the bulk Delaney, of the... Delaney, that's maybe, the name I'm trying to remember, right? Delaney was the congressman who ran... Yeah, there was Delaney. Delaney. Yeah, okay. Um, and to some extent, Amy Klobuchar was was competing for yeah. that that segment as well. I mean, she was sort of trying to be, you know, one of the last moderates standing. Yeah. And I'm I'm not sure where you put Pete Buttigieg in that. Um, moderate personality, left-wing agenda is the way I see it. That's I, not bad. I mean, okay. Um, yeah, I mean, he's sort of yeah. like, he's he's an old person's idea of what a young person should be like. (laughs) (laughs) Um, You know, like as a conservative who is increasingly unmoored from like the concerns of the Republican Party and more concerned about winning these arguments about the things I actually care about, um, I I think it's somewhat tragic that you don't have a more robust faction within the Democratic Party, which I think is representative of a large number of Democrats that is looking to reconcile free markets and a social conscience or, or concepts of social justice and that kind of thing. I think there's plenty of room for that in the Democratic Party. Um, and I think there's a lot of conservatives should be more concerned about carving out that space in America generally, regardless of what the partisan consequences are. And that's really one of the reasons why I want to talk to you about Act in Line from the Acton Institute. So, you know, I'm, I'm being playful, but I'm actually also quite serious. Uh, we hear a lot these days from the Catholic post-liberal integralists and the ultramontane, you know, nationalists and all of these people. And um, as someone who uh, was deeply influenced by, by Michael Novak, um, who did amazing work, uh, not just reconciling Catholic social thought with capitalism, but arguing that capitalism and Catholic social thought actually belong together. Um, I'm very happy to give a shout out to the Acton Line, which is the flagship podcast of the Acton Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty. It's dedicated to the promotion of a free and virtuous society characterized by individual liberty and sustained by religious principles. With episodes released every Wednesday, Acton Line brings together writers, economists, religious leaders, thinkers, journalists, newsmakers, and others in conversations that bridge the gap between good intentions and sound economics. By demonstrating the compatibility of faith, liberty, and free markets, conversations on Act in Line reveal how economic freedom is essential to creating an environment in which religious freedom can flourish, but also that the market can function only when people behave morally. Faith and freedom go hand in hand. To subscribe to Acton Line, visit acton.org slash dingo or search Acton Line on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher, or where fine podcasts are available. That's acton.org slash dingo to subscribe. 
We thank the Acton Line and the Acton Institute for everything that they do and for sponsoring today's episode of The Remnant. Let's get back to the, the sort of more on point with the book. Part of your argument is that identity politics has existed for a very long time in American politics, right? In that, but what's changed is a more robust understanding or conception of white identity politics, right? A, do I have that right? And B, why don't you explain your terms and what you mean by that? Um, you know, it was, it was, I was actually just doing a, um, a book event last night with, um, uh, I don't know if you've read her work, Ashley Jardina, uh, who wrote this book, white identity politics a couple of years ago. Um, and it's, uh, her book is fascinating. She talks about, um, uh, so basically it was, it was opening for me cause I'm, you know, of, of, you know, white guy of a certain age. Um, I politically came of age in, in the late 20th century. The first election I voted in was 1988. Um, and, you know, white people at that point largely didn't conceive of themselves as, as having a race. Um, and, you know, race was something other people had. Whiteness was basically the absence of a racial identity. And there has been a shift, you know, in the, as of the early 20, 21st century, um, increasingly, um, white Americans are identifying themselves as part of a, as part of a race, you know, seeing whiteness as a thing. And it's not the same as, um, uh, you know, white animus or white racism or something like that. Um, you know, what that, that can be a part of it, but it's actually possible to, um, to see yourself as, as a white person and having an, you know, sharing an identity with other white people and being worried about, that identity's position relative to other people's positions, um, without necessarily hating other groups. Um, so I, I, I found that fascinating. I'm glad I read that at the time I was working on this book, you know, I, because of, you know, when that book came out, a lot of the discussion was about, well, well, this explains a lot about Donald Trump. Um, look how he tapped into, you know, racial concerns and white identity, um, in, uh, you know, when he was running in 2016 and I came out of that thinking, you know, how much of this is going on, on, on the democratic side as well? Um, this, this could be important. And, you know, I, you know, looked at some survey evidence and like, there's some of that, that, you know, maybe not to the extent the, I don't think the parties are equal on that, but there are some Democrats, um, you, you know, who definitely were seeing an increase in the concept of white identity and that, if, um, you know, if they see, uh, black Democrats gaining a lot of power within the party that actually stirs something in them that, the, you know, there's some concern about that, um, that, you know, they see sort of like a, a competing set of, of identity claims. Um, and identity was really, I mean, that was one of the central issues going on within, uh, the democratic party between 2016 and 2020 is, is people sort of wrestling with, you know, where their own identity group figured in within the party, um, wrestling with what the party's ultimate mission was, you know, how much, uh, should they be sort of, um, trying for equality or trying for, you know, to, to advantage those groups that have been silenced for a while, or, you know, just sort of, or casting aside identity claims for, for the chance of winning. But it was, you know, just, just a very salient conversation right now within the party. Um, and so, so uh, I, I, I want to figure out the, the succession order of this conversation. But mm. um, so the um, my own view on identity politics has always been I'm against identity politics, but I have no fundamental problem with ethnic politics. And I understand that for some people, that's really a distinction without a difference. And 
But my point is, is that sort of of this sort of hard academic, sort of the campus version of identity politics, which to me is anti, sort of an anti-enlightenment position, going back to like Demeist, where it's, there's this iron cage of identity and you can't get outside of who, of these arbitrary categories and, um, um, and that assimilation is sort of a fighting word and all that. I'm, I'm, I, I have real problems with that version of identity politics, but ethnic politics is politics to a large extent, right? You know, I mean, it's like, you know, you had German communities in the founding era and it, the idea that you wouldn't have a political, you know, representative go speak to them in German, despite how evil bilingual education might be, is just stupid, right? And reaching out to different constituencies, different coalitions goes back to the very nature of politics, back to Aristotle, right? It just sort of explain to people why your coalition is more, will serve their interests better than the other coalition that they're in. So I, I, and even, even stuff which makes me a little queasy about, you know, Jewish seats or Catholic seats on the Supreme Court, I don't love that stuff. But through the prism of ethnic politics, it doesn't freak me out that much. Um, but the one thing that I really cannot stand is white identity politics. Mm. Because as you said, white was not a, it's not, it's not an ethnicity, right? It is, and it, and it shouldn't be an identity. Um, and, and so I guess the first question I have is, what do you, and maybe we'll just disagree on it, but where do you think the rise of white identity comes from? I mean, why did it, why is it now a thing whereas it didn't used to be? Um, I th- and I think this is somewhat in, in Jardina's book about um, how this is how white people have perceived a world in which they see blacks and they see Latinos and they see others actually rising in stature. Um, you know, not necessarily, you know, whether regardless of like improving their economic lot or anything like that, that they have um, that non-white faces have actually become more prominent in American society over the last few decades. Um, you know, you, you, you see more TV shows, you see more cultural indicators, you see, um, you know, more, uh, businesses and to some extent politicians, um, just, uh, you know, I mean, Barack Obama's presidency had, it's, it's hard not to see him as president and have, you know, not have some effect on, on how white people perceive politics and whites perceive their own positions. And so I think some of that is just a reaction to just the increasing diversity of America. Um, some of that is, I think, part of conscious decisions by politicians to, you know, in some ways exploit that. Um, there was, I, I don't think I have this in the book, but there's, um, uh, there was some story I remember reading about the, uh, during the 2008 presidential race, shortly before the election, um, about some, uh, it was like a, a, a democratic, uh, canvasser, um, knocking on doors in rural Pennsylvania and, you know, just trying to make sure people turned out to vote and they get to one person's door, you know, this older white woman answers the door and they say, Hey, do you know who you're going to be voting for? And so the woman goes back inside, she yells to her husband, do you know, who we're voting for and comes back to the canvasser and she says, I think we have to go with the N word and, (laughs) (laughs) and yeah, like what a story. Right. Um, but it's just sort of a reminder that like, oh, there's plenty of racism out there, but that's not always salient to people's voting choices. 
um, that sometimes it could just, you know, particularly when in 2008, where you had both Obama and McCain kind of going out of their way to not racialize that contest. And you also have, um, you know, a very, you know, an economy in crisis and people can just say, look, maybe I wouldn't normally cast this vote, but things are too serious right now. I really have to cast a vote this way. And then in 2016, you have a, you know, a Republican candidate who really goes very much in the other direction and tries to make it as much about identity as possible. And it just, and maybe, uh, I don't know, maybe one candidate can't have that kind of influence, but maybe he can, um, and just gets people to think about their political decisions in a very identity focused way. Um, and, you know, get people to think about themselves as white, get white people to think about themselves as white people. Um, and, and just sort of see themselves as, as losing out to other races as a result. And I, I agree there's like, there's all sorts of dangers in that, but it also reminds me that like, you know, all, all identity claims are in some ways, they're a construction, right? I mean, it's, um, you know, what we've, you know, what we think of, even like what we think of as, as it's the Italian American identity is, it was, was very much made in the U S that, you know, a lot of these people came over at a time when Italy itself was very divided. Um, but it was almost not Italy. (laughs) Right. (laughs) (laughs) Right. But they've defined an Italian American meaning here. Um, and, uh, you know, these, these, there's just sort of a a sense that people get of like, oh, this is a shared identity. We had, we now have our own cultural traditions and we have our own food and we have our own political beliefs. Um, you know, these things can be constructed, um, for, you know, for both for good and for ill. Yeah, so I, I guess, and I, and it'd be unfair, particularly we're so far into the podcast for me to turn it into a big thing about identity politics, but listening to your answer, I, I didn't hear anything I disagreed with, but there was, to me, there was something important, truly, I think, truly important missing in that, and, and I'm, I don't think I'm alone in thinking, I mean, Sherry Berman's written about this, uh, Jonathan Haidt, to a certain extent, has written about this, Arthur Brooks has written about this, that the rise in the sort of the white supremacy talk, the rise in, yes, all white people are racist talk, um, the, the tearing down of, of statues beyond, you know, the Nathan Bedford store, forest statues, which I, I can live with those going down. I mean, I'd, I'd rather someone have a permit to remove them, you know, <laughs> but whatever. Um, but the, the sort of the broadly caricatured sort of Howard Zinn version of American history, the cancel culture stuff. Um, there is a really dangerous thing going on when you have national spokespeople in an informal sense, uh, talking about how white people are an undifferentiated group and they're bad. And, um, you, there's, there's ample research that shows that when you engage in that kind of discourse or politics, you are more likely to make more white people more racist because there is a tendency when you hear, you know, blanket statements about this identity that now you're being encouraged to assume, right? Because that's how journalism talks about white people. Washington Post is now going to capitalize white. Um, uh, and then you're told that white people are bad or that, that white people should feel guilty. And you're someone who thinks you have a fairly, elo, you know, fairly, you know, enlightened view on racial matters that you take people as you find them. 
tell your kids not to be racist in any way. And, and yet you're like, well, wait a second. You know, my, my grandfather fought in World War II. You know, my dad is a white guy. He was a good person. People in my church are white people. What is so terrible about being white? And you create this, you create this catalytic function where people all of a sudden get defensive about, they get their Irish up about their whiteness, whereas before they never thought about being white. And in my experience, up until very recently, the only white people I ever knew who said, well, as a white person, I think X, were basically characters who could be, were people who could be characters in like Portlandia, like <laughs> extremely woke, left wing, you know, riddled with white guilt people. But, you know, and maybe some caricatures from the South, you know, as I'm free white in 21 kind of thing. And I just think there's a real danger because, and I, I agree with you where, where I agree with your stuff is that, or your answer was Donald Trump's election and his just arsonist mode of playing with matches with identity politics, dog whistles that sometimes were basically just, you know, dog bullhorns, um, is, and the incentive structure to support Donald Trump in everything that he does on the right and right-wing media creates a whole new cascade of arguments about whiteness and white culture that I think are making the problem worse. But I do think that the, the sort of campus identity politics left has a lot to answer for in how this chain reaction starts. And I'll, you can, I'll, I'll let you respond to that, but I just thought I would throw that out there. Well, I, I mean, I hear what you're saying. I, it's, it's, one of the things that I'm trying to get into in this book is the idea that basically, basically all politics is identity politics. Okay. That is every political claim involves some assumption about the identity of the audience that you're speaking to. And, you know, we have a way of, of talking, you know, in, in the political discourse, and this is, you know, within both parties and just nationally that, um, well, look, we can talk about identity or we can talk about what regular Americans want. And that in itself is making a claim, you know, what regular Americans mean. It usually means white. It usually means middle-class. Um, there's, you know, there's some quote I have in the book there from, uh, from a democratic consultant in the, in the mid 1980s and just say, look, we can, you know, we can do what Jesse Jackson and the feminists want, or we can be listening to regular Americans. Okay. You're, 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 you're appealing to white identity without saying it. Um, and when, you know, when people talk about, you know, we have to get back to regular concerns like jobs, um, as opposed to these, these special interests you know, that is also a, a form of identity. Um, that is, you know, saying I want to advantage some group within the party as opposed to others. Uh, I think I have this quote in there from Christina Walbrecht that like, you know, there's not a neutral way to fill a pothole, you know, whose pothole and whose street in front of whose house is a form of identity. Someone's going to be advantaged there. Um, so, and I, I, um, I, I see what you mean about the, the concerns about it. I don't know that it's, um, necessarily people pointing out, uh, that white racism is a thing that causes it to happen. 
Um, I, I think that a number of politicians, you know, I think probably more in the Republican Party, but not solely, have been making appeals to whites without necessarily using that specific language for, for quite some time now. Um, this was actually in, something... In, in defense of a yeah. part of that, and in defense of part of that is that whites up until very, in our lifetime, you know, were 85, 90% of the electorate. Right. So, you know, appealing to whites is kind of like... <laughs> Very hard not to do when you're running for office trying to get a majority of votes, right? Uh, yes, this is absolutely right. And it's still, you know, it's still a healthy majority of the party. Um, it's still even a majority of, of the Democratic Party, although, you know, a much more narrow one than it used to be. Um, so uh, candidates are still always looking for ways to reach out to that segment of of, of the electorate without sounding explicitly racial, because that does, you know, that people notice that people scare that. Uh, get scared by that. I think particularly to Hillary Clinton in 2008 running against Barack Obama. Um, if you remember like how, how she ran that campaign, like she sort of seeded uh, most of the black left to, to uh, Barack Obama in that primary and was very much trying to appeal to white working class Democrats. And she was campaigning in, you know, in rural Pennsylvania and West Virginia and other places. And people were really watching her like a hawk, you know, just, you know, just jumping on anything she said that sounded explicitly like she just wanted white votes. Um, and Bill Clinton was saying some really awkward things about yeah, you know, trying yeah, to just, dis- you know, dismiss uh, South Carolina's voters. Said, oh, well, they voted for Jesse Jackson. You know, we, we know we don't have to listen to them. Um, it was awkward. And uh, so that there's always going to be some of that. But, um, you know, I, I, I I still feel like, you know, people on the left can, you know, call out, yeah, you can call out white supremacy when you hear it. And that doesn't, you know, that doesn't necessarily mean anyone who's trying to appeal to white voters is a white supremacist. But what well, also I, I doesn't mean that everything that's yeah. inconvenient to the Democratic Party is a tool of white supremacy, right? I mean, True. I do not, the Electoral College, we can have an argument about whether it's good or bad, but until 2016, the Democratic Party was bragging about their inherent advantage in the blue <laughs> wall. And then once it worked against them, it was a vestige of, of racism and, and slavery. I mean, there's a lot of that kind of stuff. I, I, I take your point that to govern is to choose. Politics is about choices. Economics is about choices. And so when you say there's no neutral way to fill a pothole, I think that's a nice, pithy, good point. At the same time, you know, I can I, I, I can in good campus speak say, yes, all identities are some sense constructed. I agree with that. But not all identities are equal. Not all forms of identity construction are as good for civic health as others. Right. I would rather live in a polity where people said following on. No, there's no neutral way to fill a pothole. I would rather live in in a in a community which said, um, and therefore it's obvious that you're privileging Weehawken over Hoboken, right? Not black people over white people. And I think that in in while race probably plays into why Weehawken gets one rather than Hoboken, I don't know that it's necessarily the decisive or dispositive factor. And I think we would be a healthier country if forms of identity had more to do with notions of community or or class, right? I mean, that's sort of one of the great 
arguments with that divides that has divided the left my entire life that I find fascinating to to look at the 1619 project and these things through how the the, the forces of class were really of class first were really angry about the 1619 project and I think that's one of the appeals that Bernie Sanders had was that he didn't really know how to talk about race stuff because he want he was an old school sort of you know union socialist democratic socialist guy who wanted to talk about how class was everything and it seems to me that if you're going to have an argument that says a white janitor and Bill Gates um, share something really meaningful called whiteness, you're missing a lot of important considerations. And that's sort of part of what I'm getting at. I, I certainly see your point on that. And I, you know, you know, politicians will go into this with different agendas. I, I, you know, I've, I've, I don't think there's any way to say that it's it's just class or it's just race. You know, there's there's obviously lots of lots of both going on. And this is honestly, that's a lot of the fights within the Democratic Party have been just about these issues about, you know, just just which is the more, you know, which is the more salient rift. You know, at the same time, we've had um, it's not always just politicians deciding, oh, I'm going to make this about racial identity today. Um some, you know, some things just sort of uh, find themselves getting forced to the fore that you have, you know, when a uh, repeated number of, of unarmed black men get, uh, you know, uh, assaulted or, or, or killed by cops. And, you know, enough of that gets in the news and people record their experiences with police officers and things like that. And, and people notice a pattern. Um, and you know, it's hard to say that that's a class thing. This, this looks very much like a racial identity thing. And the, the lines very get quickly drawn around that, that look pretty racialized. It is, you know, we've, these issues eventually just get, um, they just sort of rise to the top of the national conversation and it's hard for it not to be about racial identity. Um, and people can decide what to do about it after that. I mean, you know, one of the, um, uh, there's a, uh, wonderful book I recently read. Um, uh, I don't know if you've read Lee Drutman's book, uh, breaking the two party doom loop. Um, no, you know, I don't think I've even heard of it. Yeah. It's, it's basically, it's an advocacy for multi-party democracy in the U S and a, sort of a roadmap for getting there. Um, but you know, as he talks about it's, you know, you can have arguments about, essentially dividing the pie, you know, you know, dividing the economic pie. And, and what's nice is that, you know, you can negotiate there. You can, you can have something you want for your community and people can have things they want for their community. And you can come up with a kind of a middle ground. Whereas if the, if you're arguing about identity, um, you can't compromise that. And it, it contributes to a, um, you know, a, a political discussion that's essentially, uh, it, it's winner take all on everything. Um, and it just, it, it contributes to the polarization we have. And, and, you know, that's maybe the, just the nature of the conversations that we need to have today are about that. Um, but, you know, I, I agree with you. It's, it's not always healthy and it's certainly not pleasant to have, uh, to have conversations about identity, but at the same time, a lot of the problems we're structuring or we're, we're dealing with, um, are very much identity oriented and, uh, you know, we, we can't wish those away. Yeah, I just, I mean, I, 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 we don't, we're going long and I don't want to yeah, yeah, yeah. I just, I think it's a matter of politics, talking to the white working class, non-college educated white working class. And I don't, 
my trafficking cliches in Appalachia or wherever and talking about their white privilege at a moment where, as you were correctly noting, there are a lot more black faces in and Hispanic faces in American life at the highest end of the class structure. And what they hear is not, oh, I should feel guilty about all the privileges I have. They hear, what the hell are you talking about? And I, I just think, and I think it leads to a, a zero sum kind of political orientation, which I oppose. I'm also, you know, as longtime listeners of this podcast know, wildly opposed to monocausal explanations of anything um, mm. and um, and reducing everything to race or to class. I just think is is talk about constructing something that's artificial from from reality because in real life things are complicated. And on that, so on that point, um, let's. Uh, you correct me if I'm wrong. I'm assuming you're assuming that Biden is going to win, but you're not necessarily. 100% confident on it, right? Um, that seems but fair. Let's, yeah. say that he, let's say that he does win. Um, what direction does the Demo- Democratic Party take? So, yeah, assuming he gets in, I mean, that'll be really interesting because you have this, you know, I think a very active left within the Democratic Party right now that has largely played ball with Biden. Uh, for, you know, for the purposes of the nomination, for the purposes of this campaign that will, I think, have real demands of him um, once, you know, should should he be in office. And, um, you know, that's really been a fascinating thing to watch is just uh, Biden. And this is not necessarily the reason he won the nomination, but like Biden has a real coalitional orientation. Um, he is someone you look back on like a 50 year career. He's someone who's been relentlessly at the center of the of the Democratic Party for, you know, for half a century. And that party is not the same as it was half a century ago. Um, so I think he's he's really good at like reading the room. He's re- getting a sense of who's to his left, who's to his right. And he's someone that that others in the party can do business with. Um, I think you'll have you'll have Sanders, you'll have AOC, you'll have Elizabeth Warren, you'll have others who really want to pull him to the left on a number of things, whether that's um, whether that's health care reform, which I, I think he's largely on board with, um, you know, in terms of just sort of, you know, expanding Obamacare's access to having a, sort of a public option, if not going all the way toward like Medicare for all. Um, I think his coronavirus response will be much more coordinated. Um but, you know, in terms of what the party does that, you know, there'll, there'll be some grumbling, um, and it will be a, it'll, you know, he, w- it would not look as dev- as united as the party looks right now, which I think is, which I think is inevitable, um, once, once actual governing decisions have to take place. So I think there would be a lot of competition for his attention, um, to win him over. There'd be a lot of people pulling him in different directions. And I think he's, you know, he'll listen. Um, but not everyone's going to be happy. Um, there'll be, I, I think a lot of grumpiness, particularly considering, you know, the magnitude of the problems he would have to address among immediately getting an office, um, including, you know, uh, I, I think this, this virus is going to be a very significant concern is going to really depress economic growth for some time. And, um, you know, even if his, if his response to it is, you know, just like by the scientific consensus, the right response. He still has a very long road to hoe with that. Yeah. Um, yeah, because there's a debate on the right, sort of threefold. There's one who actually buys the Biden as the 
Trojan horse of the left, and we're going to get we're going to be somewhere between Venezuela and Sweden several months into his presidency. Um, and then there are people who think he could have a real. The way I, I was talking about it with um, Steve Kornacki is, uh, is it, is it LBJ's first hundred days, or is it LBJ's last hundred days? <laughs> <laughs> because you can see the left trying to eat him alive, right? And um, and my guess is it's not going to be as stark as either. But uh, this idea, you know, a lot of people on the right think that the Dem- the Democrats are this monolith and that they will all work in lockstep, and I. I'm always just like, have you paid attention to the last 175 years of American politics? Um, but okay, so what do you what do you think happens if, should Trump lose to the Republican Party? Oh, um, so that'll be interesting. Um, if if Trump loses, and you know, assuming that you know the polls we have today are roughly accurate, that you know he goes down by like seven points or something like that. Um, there will, I mean, again, there will be a real, there'll be a competition to control that narrative about why he lost. Um, I think some within the party will be saying this was a fluke, that this was about the pandemic. They couldn't see that coming. That wasn't Trump's fault. And that, you know, had it not been for that, he, he would have won. Now, I don't think that's true. You know, even before the pandemic, he was still trailing Biden by like four or five points, um, which in itself is shocking that like a pandemic and a recession, like the penalty for that is like two or three points. But, you know, setting that aside, um, I think, uh, you know, and there'd be others who'd be like, it didn't have to be this way that we could have won more easily in 2016. And we could have won pretty handily this year because presidents tend to win reelection with a, with a, a more normal candidate. Um, I think Trump will still be a factor within the party. Um, I think no matter what happened, no matter what a loss looks like, he will be complaining he got screwed, um, that somehow this process was rigged and that he deserves to be the nominee in 2024. And that, you know, maybe to some extent, he's still the president in exile or something like that. Um, And I think I don't see where a lot of those voices who will resist that within the party are right now. I mean, for the most part, you know, the party's elected officials have really gone all in in protecting him. They, They could pivot again. But I think they still seem to be, um, you know, courting his favor and and aligning themselves with him. Um, and I, I think, you know, I, I don't know who it is that would challenge him for the Republican nomination and actually like win a substantial chunk of that party for 2024. I'm curious what uh, your thought on that. Yeah, no, I, I think there's the same belling. There's a similar belling the cat problem that you mm-hmm. had in 2016 where it's in everyone's interest to bell the cat, but no one wants to be the mouse to bell the cat. Um, um, uh, I do think, and we have this, we've had this uh, argument um, at the dispatch internally on our other podcast quite a bit. I think that the um, part, part of the prediction is, is that, well, losing really hurts and you're going to lose even more of that plurality of the party that likes you just because you're, you know, I don't mean this necessarily pejoratively, you're a loser, right? I mean, just look how people treat Mitt Romney because he lost. That's part of Trump's argument. Um, but then there's the larger, um, then there are like ex- exogenous factors that are, we don't know about it. How many people start telling the truth about how things worked in the administration? Right? I mean, that could have a real effect. Um, but I agree with you. He is going to, from his, you know, 
his Elba of OANN or whatever he creates claim that he was robbed and he will hold on to 25% of the party and, um, or primary voters, which, you know, was sort of the same thing in a way. And, um, um, but I have an abiding confidence in the ambition of people like Tom Cotton and Ted Cruz and, and others to be president of the United States. And so my hunch is that they would wait a respectable period of time before saying, I think it's time for new leadership. And I think that would probably be it. Okay. So last, last question. Okay. I know we went along, but I, I just had to, I have to get this out because it's one of my obsessions. Um, have the, have the primary, has the primary system been good for American democracy? And, um, uh, why can't we get rid of it? <laughs> Cause I'm, I am now decidedly anti-primary. I, yeah. I am just, I, I, I hate them. Um, yeah, I'm not a huge fan. Um, I would, uh, so honestly, I've been, I've been favoring some reforms. I think like uh, Hans Knoll and a few other political scientists have been sort of pushing, uh, Jonathan Rausch also at the Atlantic, um, pushing for some ideas like, okay, keep primaries, but don't make them as tied to delegate selection. Um, you know, if, if people want to have contests, like, like we saw this year in Iowa and New Hampshire and other places, um, where candidates just basically get to show up, you know, these are my supporters, you know, I, I can, I can bring people to the polls. Great. Like the CPAC straw poll. That's fine. Right. Fine. I mean, it, yeah. Um, but, you know, basically make a lot more dele uh, delegates um, or make all delegates super delegates, basically, you know, still send them to a convention where they actually have to hammer out compromises and argue with each other about who's best for the party. And um, I, uh, you know, it kind of um, I think that's healthier. Um, you know, we didn't end up seeing all that much of that at, at, at play this year. One of the things I, I found fascinating, I got to I was watching a, uh, I was observing a caucus in, in West Des Moines this year and, uh, you know, got to spend some time walking, walking around with a, with an Elizabeth Warren campaign worker, just listening to how, you know, how he was sort of lobbying for the candidates and then just sort of watching the different factions within the room as, as they dealt with each other. Wow. Um, political science is so glamorous. Wow. Isn't it? <laughs> in, in winter in Iowa, it's awesome. Um, and I love this because you know, in, in the caucus system there, basically people have two candidate choices to make. Like you go in with your first choice. Um, and then if for some reason your, your candidate doesn't reach the viability threshold, which is like 15% of the room, then you have to go pick a, your second favorite candidate. And so you watch people sort of making decisions like, okay, who do I like, but who do I also think is good for the party? Um, who would I, who would I accept? Uh, and, that's actually a really healthy way of thinking about a nomination. Now, I'm not necessarily advocating that everything should be the Iowa caucus. There were all sorts of problems that we saw there. And I don't think that contest is long for this world either. Um, but I would, you know, love to see people, um, you know, I, I think the primary system where people's just thinking, well, who's my favorite in a private vote? That's actually not that great for a party. Um, I, I think you want a party thinking like a party, thinking about what is its you know, what would different groups within the party care about? What is actually responsible for this party to be doing right now? What would actually work for the rest of the country? Um, those are decisions that I think convention delegates can make. 
um, and can trade with each other. And I, I, how we move to that is a, is a harder thing because that's, you know, in a, you know, in an environment where anything that smacks of, you know, elite leadership is seen as some sort of corrupt, uh, conspiracy, it's hard to move in that direction. Uh, but yeah, I'd, I'd love to give it a shot. Yeah, I, I'm totally with you. I, yeah. I you know, and also it just makes in the era of mass media and social media and the dominance of cable news networks on one side or the other, uh, it makes raw sort of popularity more impo- important than qualifications. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, that's, you know, that's basically, um, what's his name? You know, Mark Anthony swinging the bloody toga. And <laughs> I just, I, I don't like it, but anyway, uh, Seth Maskett, thank you so much for doing this. Thank you for indulging my tangents. Um, and, uh, I hope you'll come back at some point. And, um, the book is learning from loss, uh, the Democrats, uh, 2016 to 2020. Thanks so much for coming on. Thanks so much. I really enjoyed it. All right. So Seth has left the uh, building and um, I am exhausted and still have to write a column, but I thought that was a pretty interesting conversation and I feel a little guilty about imposing my own views so much on him um, because it's a really interesting book and he really does know a great deal about parties and he did a lot of work on, on um, learning from loss. And it's, it's, it's a book that's really for people interested in this stuff. It's, it's really worth taking a look at and getting. Um, but he was a good egg and it was, a, I thought an interesting conversation. Curious what you guys think, please comment at the remnant page at the dispatch, or if you have something nice to say, which I have to say, some of you don't, um, which, you know, hurts me. Uh, but if you have something nice to say, if you could say it at iTunes or any of the other places where you get your podcast, that would be great. If you could have something nice to say or something thoughtful to say on Twitter, that would be great too. If you hadn't noticed, I tend to retweet, you know, the thoughtful or respond to the thoughtful and retweet the, um, the, the praise, um, on Twitter because word of mouth is really important. And, uh, you know, we really think that the, the listeners to this are probably the best ambassadors for this podcast and for the dispatch generally. So any help that you can provide um, is greatly appreciated. And other than that, I will see you next time. Uh, no, you won't. This is a podcast. <laughs>